Today, my guest is Mark Wallin, the director of the Family Constellation Institute in San Francisco. He's also a leading expert in the field of inherited family trauma. He's the author of the book, It Didn't Start With You, How Inherited Family Trauma Shapes Who We Are and How to End the Cycle. The book was the winner of the 2016 Nautilus Book Award in Psychology. His articles have appeared in Psychology Today, Mind Body Green, MariaShriver.com, Elephant Journal and Psych Central, and his poetry has been published in The New Yorker. I hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to Journey to Authenticity. My name is Sarah Hart. Join me in the quest to uncover our true self and make aligned choices with relationships, purpose, spirituality, and body-mind. Together with my guests, we share the stories, practices, and perspectives on how we can all live an authentic life. Remove the mask, reveal the real you, and spread your light. Well, thank you so much for being here, Mark. It's wonderful to have you here. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Sarah. So uh, I've really been looking forward to this conversation because the the subject of trauma is has been a kind of focus area for me. It's something I've gone deep into in the last sort of three years or so, and I'm fascinated by. And um, the whole topic of trauma has become much more of a mainstream conversation in the last few years. But when people think of trauma, I think most people's mind go to early childhood trauma, possibly PTSD but much fewer go to the topic of generational trauma. And, um, and yeah, exactly. So I thought it would be great first if you could just explain to our audience how we actually inherit family trauma. How is it that it can pass from parent to child and beyond? Yeah, I'm happy to talk about that. First of all, inherited trauma. Um, we're looking at the events, the traumatic events that happened to our parents and our grandparents. You know, let's say our mother or father lost um, a parent when they were young or they were sent away or placed in an orphanage or one of their siblings died tragically when they were young. Um, something like this can collapse the family. And the reaction to the trauma to those alive at that time doesn't necessarily end there. The reaction, the stress response, the feelings, the sensations, um, specifically, the stress response can be passed to the children and the grandchildren. And now there's, you know, biological evidence for this. So technically, um, you know, when a trauma happens, it, it changes us. Literally, there's a chemical change that happens in our DNA. And this changes the way um, we can act or, or we feel. Um, technically, there's a chemical tag after this traumatic event. Um, let's call it a, an epigenetic tag. We'll attach to our DNA and tell the cells to use or ignore certain genes based on this thing that just happened, enabling us to better deal with this trauma. And then the way the genes are affected can change how um, we act or feel um, uh, for example, we can become sensitive or reactive to situations that are similar to this event, um, even, as, even if this event occurred in a past generation. So we have a better chance of surviving it, and our offspring have a better chance of surviving it, say, in the next generation. Uh, I'll give you an example. If our um, grandparents come from a war-torn country, let's say there's you know explosions and bombs and bullets and people being taken away and people being lined up in the street or put in jail. We, you know, we see something terrible happen to our parents, our, 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 their parents, our grandparents who have experienced this event, they're going to um, develop a skill set um, of let's say sharper reflexes or quicker reaction times or ducking whenever they hear a loud explosion, you know, responses to the violence um, to help them survive the trauma that they're experiencing. Well, this is what gets passed forward. And now here we are, born a generation or two later, inheriting this skill set, these stress responses, these reactions. Um, but often we're inheriting a, 
a stress response with the dials set to 10. And here we are born not in a war-torn environment and we're waiting for the, the roof to fall. You know, we're waiting for this catastrophe um, that never arrives, but here we are prepared for it. Mm. And, you know, we don't make the link. We, in fact, we rarely make the link that our, our anxiety, our hypervigilance, our depression, our shutdown is connected to our parents or grandparents. We just think we're wired this way. Right. I remember reading, I think it was a study in about 2018, and it said that some of these epigenetic memories could pass down by 14 generations. Well, see, it, they find this in certain types of worms. Mm -hmm. that they'll, they'll say that there's a trail of 14 generations. But as far as humans, you know, all we can really talk about is two or three. Right. And in mice, we can show three or four. Um, because, you know, it takes, the, the studies are new. So yeah. it's only the last 13, 15 years. And it takes 13, 15, 20 years to get a generation of humans. And for that reason, you know, they've been looking at studies with mice, which have a similar genetic makeup as humans. Uh, over 90%, 92%, 93% of the genes in humans have counterparts in mice with over 80% being identical. So, and plus you can get a generation in mice in 12 to 20 weeks, as opposed to 12 to 20 years. Right. And, and so they can traumatize, unfortunately, poor little mice in the lab, and then look at the epigenetic effects and the generational effects. And they can see that the traumas can pass forward for at least three generations in mice and the types of traumas they're they're not quite that severe um, as you would think you know maybe they uh, this is one study I talk about in my book where they separated the baby mice from their mothers for up to two three hours a day for only the first two weeks of life mm. and then the mice started exhibiting symptoms of what we would call depression in humans, you know, their social behavior changed. And then the symptoms seemed to worsen as the mice aged. And in this one particular study, which was fascinating, some of the male mice that were traumatized didn't exhibit the depressive symptoms themselves, but appeared to epigenetically transmit these behavioral changes to their female offspring in this one study. Wow. That's like fathers going off to war and coming back numb from the trauma and their daughters carrying their father's fight or flight or freeze response, his shaking, his terror, his shutdown. And what we know from, you know, looking at all the studies is it's not just fathers and daughters. It's mothers and daughters, fathers and sons, mothers and sons, fathers and daughters, you know, male children and female children are equally impacted by a mother's or a father's trauma. Um, you know, for those of you listeners that follow my Facebook page, I, I have every week or two, I list the recent studies that um, I'll just, I'll just name two of them that were fascinating. There's a recent study in journal of American medicine psychiatry that looked at mothers who suffered trauma as children and found that their daughters were more likely to struggle with depression and bipolar disorder. And then there's a recent Tufts University study that looked at men who suffered trauma as children, and they were able, the men were able to pass their anxiety to their children through their sperm. And what's interesting, this is one of the first studies to show that human sperm mirrored the same changes that they study in mice, mm -hmm. the same non-coding RNA. Um, this is non-coding RNA. This would be a particular type of genetic epigenetic mechanism. Uh, a, it's, technically, it's a genetic material that regulates gene expression. And they find that this is a common dynamic in the mice that are traumatized that pass this forward 
where they can see the trail three generations of the same traumatic behavior coming from the one event that happened in the first generation. So now they're able to see that, okay, we can see this in mice, but now we can also see the non-coding RNA um, molecules in humans. Um, to, to just very quickly to, to, to describe RNA and non-coding RNA. RNA, which is copied from DNA, acts as a messenger mm -hmm. to instruct the cell's ribosomes to produce specific proteins, which enable the genes to become silent or, or activated. Well, cells also produce non-coding RNAs that don't produce proteins, but they piggyback onto the messenger RNA, um, interfering with or amplifying their function, causing more or less of these proteins to be produced, hence more or less of these genes to become activated or silenced based on the trauma that just happened. There, there's a researcher at the University of Zurich named Isabel Monsui at the Brain Research Institute. And she's doing some fascinating work right now with mice and with humans. In fact, she's looking at um, the blood of uh, the survivors. Remember the attack in Nice in 2015 where yeah. that guy drove his van and the promenade and he killed 80 people? Yeah. Well, what she's doing is she's looking at the blood of the survivors and she's taking their blood samples and she's finding correlations in the blood of the survivors and the blood of the mice that she's traumatized in her mm -hmm. laboratories. Um, she's also looking at the blood of Pakistani orphans who've lost their parents. Mm -hmm. And she's making correlations with these mice that are separated from their parents. So when there's been an unpredictable separation, you and I talked about this in the beginning, traumas in early childhood, um, where you know they've been separated from their mothers and mothers have died, for example. She sees changes in the orphans' blood, in the levels of their fatty acids, um, in their saliva, and changes that, that were also mirrored again in the mice that she's traumatized in her lab, she's finding similar small non-coding RNA alterations. So basically, simply put, similar biomarkers in mice and in children. Got you. And so this is passing through, almost like this chemical stress response is passing through and then creates these patterns of behavior or thought exactly. or feeling that comes through generations exactly so these patterns of behavior you know here we are you and i behaving in a way and we think it's just us you know mm. oh i've always been anxious we say or i've mm. always you know been frightened by policemen in uniforms or or i've always whenever somebody very big and tall enters the room i can't speak you know we think it's our pattern yeah. And yet it could be an inherited pattern because we're talking about inherited stress responses, inherited trauma responses. That's what it, you and I think we're a clean blank slate, but it's not true. You know, we're actually uh, inheriting the software, to put it in a computer analogy, of our parents and our grandparents who went through some terrible things. And here we are behaving similarly, thinking it's us. So then if we're experiencing, let's say in our relationships that we're struggling with some element of connection or whether that's in our intimate relationships or with our children, reactive and triggered or at work or um, relationship with money or, or any of these things, could those be some of the signs and symptoms that it's related to some form of inherent uh, inherited trauma? Very sharp question. Those are exactly <laughs> the signs. So for example, um, yes, we can be born with an anxiety or a depression. Mm -hmm. We can be born with it. And we can never and we never think to separate it from the events of the previous generation. That's true. But we can also experience a fear 
or a symptom that strikes suddenly or unexpectedly when we reach a certain age, let's say, you know, all of a sudden we hit the age of 30 and we start to shut down to our partner, never thinking that our grandmom became a widow at age 30 or never thinking that our parents had a big blowout and uh, divorced at age 30. So ages I look at can be quite significant, but also certain events or milestones in our lives can be significant. For example, everything's cool, but then we get married. And as soon as we get married, we start to have a, um, you, you, an inherited stress response, and we don't think to connect it. In the book, I talk about a woman, you know, she loves her husband. She marries the right guy. He's great. Um, but as soon as she gets married, she feels trapped. And she doesn't understand it because she knows she loves this guy. But then when we looked at her family history, we saw that back in Lebanon, both grandmothers had been given away as child brides, one at nine and one at 12, to these much older men, like these men are in their 40s or 50s. And they're living these loveless lives to these much older men in these, you know, just they feel trapped. So what was so interesting, I looked at her two sisters and it, the trauma expressed differently in each of her sisters. The one sister married a much older man, 30 years older, and the other sister refused to have a relationship at all. So here you see the same trauma, you know, the grandmothers being given away as children, but it expressed differently in each one of the siblings. Another mm -hmm. trigger is we could move to a new place. And everything's cool, but we move across town. And all of a sudden we become depressed, like our ancestors that were persecuted and forced out of their homeland. Or we get rejected by our partner. And even though we only dated this person for like two months or something like that, we're devastated. We don't want to live. You know, the grief is insurmountable. It's not making sense but it's tipped us into a much earlier grief, maybe um, a break in the attachment with our mom when we were an infant. So all of a sudden, this breakup takes us into an early trauma or even an inherited trauma when grandma was in an orphanage and she was taken away from her mom. Um, so being rejected by a partner can be you know, it's what I like to call the ancestral alarm clock starts ringing. Um, I once worked with this woman because another trigger could be getting pregnant or having kids. I worked with this woman who was consumed with anxiety and she had no clue. She just knew she was anxious. And I'm saying, let's slow it down and let's get to the where this anxiety first began. And she's, she said, I don't know. I, I don't know. Seven, eight months. I've just been anxious like this. And I said, what happened seven, eight, nine months ago? And she said, well, I got pregnant because she was pregnant when I was working with her. And I said, ah, what is it about this pregnancy that, it, that you're, what's the worst thing that could happen to you? That question I ask in my book, I ask all those questions, but one of them is what's your worst fear? And she said that I'll harm my baby. And I said, well, have you ever harmed a baby? And she said, no. And I said, did anyone in your family ever harm a baby? And she was just about to say no. And then all of a sudden came this memory when grandma had a baby, the first baby, when she was a young mom, she lit a candle and it caught the curtains on fire and then caught the house on fire and the baby was upstairs and she couldn't get the baby out and the baby died. And then the woman suddenly says, but we were never allowed to talk about it. And in that moment, she made the link that she had inherited the terror of her grandmother uh, from that incident. And, and, and then we were able to break the pattern. It's a really great example, actually. But it, so it seems to be that transitions seem to be a big trigger. They tend to be a trigger. Beautiful. In, in well put. Trans yeah. Transitions, milestones, events, ages. Mm. Yes. There's so many questions that come up with this, actually, from from what you've just said. One of them, though, that some of those signs and symptoms that you're describing, they could still potentially be related to some early childhood trauma, maybe. 
Um, especially if we don't necessarily know our history. So how do we distinguish the difference? Well, well that's just it. We don't know. You're 100% right. So somebody comes with a feeling of, let's say they get um, the easily dissatisfied in relationships mm -hmm. and they shut down easily and they have a feeling like they'll be rejected or abandoned. Um, now, if you remember that question I ask in the book, um, it goes in two directions. For example, there's a, an attachment direction, which can take us to an early attachment trauma, and there's a generational direction. So if somebody tells me, um, oh, I'm in my relationships, and I'm terrified I'll be rejected or left or abandoned, and that's my worst fear. Well, that information tells me that we're talking about, likely talking about somebody who's been rejected, abandoned, or left by the mother, or the mother with the grandmother, or the father with the grandmother, because these traumas are heritable, right? We never really know. Is it our early trauma with our mother, or our mother's early trauma with her mother, or our father's early trauma with his mother, or our grandmother? Remember, three generations is the link. Yeah. So can it, it can be our grandmother was 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 her mother died when she was two and she felt rejected, alone, abandoned. And that's what passed forward in the family. So you're right. We never do know. We have to peel back the layers and become detectives of what I call trauma language, core language. Mm, as as you know from in the book, the book what, I, yeah. what I do is I help people become detectives of this trauma language. You know, we start ask, we start poking around and we start asking questions to try to dig up some of this language in our own family histories. So we can make that link. Is it early trauma from our childhood, from our infancy, from the time we were in utero? Or is it a generational language? Like, I'll give you an example of some generational language. I'll do something terrible and I'll be hated. Or remember a woman that I described earlier? I'm, I feel trapped in my marriage, like grandma. Or here's some other early generational language that would go to um, something that may have happened. I'll do something wrong and it'll be all my fault and I won't deserve to live. And, you know, young people often will, may carry something like this. I, I worked with this woman, she was a cutter, and she used to cut very deeply into her body and almost bleed to death. She was only 24. And I, I said to her one time, here, let me give you this pen and pretend it's the knife that you used to cut yourself. Because every time she would cut, she would cut, uh, an artery or a vessel and her parents would have to rush her to the hospital so she didn't bleed out and so I ha had her holding this pen and uh, I had her um, uh, place it to her body and tell me the sentence the feeling the impulse the urge as she's about to bring this pen slash knife to her body and she said to me I don't deserve to live. And I said, really? What have you done? I'm going to call her uh, uh, Jennifer for the sake of this interview. What have you done, Jennifer? Did you cause an accident? Did, did you uh, break up with somebody who killed them? So she goes, no, nothing like that. Because here I am looking at a 24-year-old woman whose life has just begun. So as we... Um, explored her family history, we saw that her father's mother was driving the car drunk and she hit a pole. And she lived, but the grandfather went through the windshield, through the glass, got cut on the glass and bled to death before the oh. ambulance arrived. And in that moment, just by telling that story, everything was right there. When she bled, bleeds, when she cuts herself and almost bleeds to death, something in her psyche is remembering the grandfather that was never talked about. Mm -hmm. And when she says, I don't deserve to live, 
of mm. course, that's the grandmother's feeling for kill, killing her beloved. So I had her, I put two chairs in front of her. And I said to her, Jennifer, tell your grandfather what you do. And she has her eyes closed and she's looking at the chair, the grandfather in her mind's eye that she never met. And she's crying and saying, Grandpa, I cut myself and I nearly bleed to death. And I said, tell him like you did. And she said, like you did. And I said, tell him that every time you cut, you nearly bleed to death. And that this has nothing to do with you and everything to do with him. And she's saying these words and she's crying. And, and I say, so what's he, what's he showing you? What's he saying? And she's saying, he doesn't want me to do this. He's saying that every time I, I have the impulse to cut, to feel him behind me, protecting me. And I said, okay, now tell your grandmother in the other chair who she never met because her grandmother was long dead before she met her. Grandma, I have the feeling that I deserve to die. And I know this isn't my feeling. And now I can see it would have been your feeling. And she's crying and I saying, what, what's grandma telling you? And in her mind's eye, she's saying, grandma's saying the same thing that every time I have that feeling to feel her with me, blessing me, supporting me, with me. And she did that. Every time now that she had the impulse to cut, she feels her grandparents behind her, blessing her, supporting her, uh, kind of like, um, if you will, guardian spirits. Yeah. Yeah. And she never cuts again. Wow. So, yeah. Amazing. Amazing to be able to have the opportunity to open dialogue, even with somebody that you've not necessarily met. Um, so, I mean, some of those statements that you said, the concept of going, you know, I'll do something wrong or I'll be rejected. I don't deserve X, Y, Z. That's something I think many of us can relate to um, that is language or maybe thought that many of us have had in some way. And so as you're suggesting, there could be a length of this being inherited in some way or some pattern that's implicit in our memory. What if like, like for myself, I'm adopted. So I, there's very little information that I know about my history. And I think many others, they maybe don't know much about their history. Are there still ways that we can heal this or make these connections without that memory? Oh, absolutely. Knowledge? Absolutely. Even when there's no information, mm. um, let's say because we've been adopted, that information, it lives in our trauma language. Mm. It also lives in our own fears of having children. It also lives in our own feeling that we could harm a child or we won't be a good mother or, or that, you know, or, or it can, it, the way I look at it is when we don't have the information, not only does it live in our trauma language, our verbal language, it lives in our nonverbal language. It can live, for example, in our self-sabotaging behaviors. It can live in the symptoms of an illness. Um, that appear suddenly again when we reach a certain age or we have an unsettling event um, in our lives and all of a sudden something appears that we talked about earlier or we can see this feelings or information or language, verbal or nonverbal trauma language, mirrored in our relationship struggles where we feel we'll be abandoned or left or be heartbroken or the repeated ways we deal with money or success, all of this forms a breadcrumb trail. And we don't even need to know what happened because it's in our behaviors, in the things we say, and in the things we do. And so even when we don't have the information, like one of us who's adopted or like one of us whose parents don't tell or whose parents are deceased, we can still, by pulling apart our own behaviors, by being a detective, by looking at what repeats in our lives. What do we keep repeating? What do we keep doing again? Who do we keep choosing again and again in relationship? What do we keep doing with money every time we have money? Do we lose it? Do we give it away? Um, what is the language that we keep saying that gives us more than a glimpse, even when we don't know? See, my book is big on trying to locate this trauma language, whether it's verbal or nonverbal. 
So if it's verbal, it's those sentences that you and I are talking about. Uh, I'll be left. I'll be abandoned. I'll do something terrible. Uh, it'll all be my fault. I won't deserve to live. Things like that. Or I'll go crazy. They'll put me away like the grandmother, sister who was put away and never got out. Um, but there's also this, what I call nonverbal trauma language, where we're looking for the physical or the emotional symptoms that show up at a certain age or after a, an unsettling event. So we're looking for the fears and anxieties that strike suddenly when we reach that age. You know, it's the same age that happened to our mother or our sister. Um, or the fears and anxieties that show up when something similar happened in the family history, a traumatic event, or like a we're looking at our depression, our destructive behaviors that arise after a situation that's similar to a traumatic event in our family history or in our childhood. Or, as I like to say, nonverbal trauma language can also be mirrored in our relationship struggles, uh, how we deal with money, success, career. All this forms a breadcrumb trail. A breadcrumb trail. Breadcrumb trail, yeah. It's a tongue twister. <laughs> Yeah, so it's sort of these patterns that we repeat. So if if somebody listening is maybe repeating these cycles in relationships or or with money or in these types of obsessive thoughts, patterns that repeat again and again could be indicators. Right, absolutely. You know, just to even give us the listener a very quick example. I recently worked with a woman who, who was diagnosed with cancer a few months after her dog died. And I said, so tell me about your doc. And she said, here's her verbal trauma language. She said, I was with him for 16 years. He was everything to me. So that was verbally. Then when we looked in her family history, here comes the nonverbal thread of this language. Her mother's favorite brother was killed in Korea, in the Korean War, when the mother was 16. And the brother was everything to her. It was her favorite brother. Also, the client's father was 16 when his father died suddenly of a massive stroke. And because she was an only child, she carried the trauma stories from both sides, the unresolved grief of both parents who lost someone important at 16. Now, when you look at that verbal language again, I was with him for 16 years. He was everything to me. That could go to the dog, of course, but it could go to her, the mother's, uh, to the father's father, or to the mother's brother. So let's say, so let's say somebody does listen to that, and they they do know that there are patterns that show up again and again, or they do identify with some of that trauma language that you're describing. How is it that they can really heal and break that cycle? Right. So that's what we have to do. Just like you said, we have to heal and break that cycle. We have to change the stress response mm. that lives in our brain, whether we've inherited it or whether it happened in our childhood, you know, so that we have now this limbic brain with this maybe overactive amygdala that's sending out alarm signals to the alarm towers in our body saying, we're not safe, we're not safe. And that could be an inherited response or uh, an engineered response when we're little. But nonetheless, we've got to calm the brain stress response. And to do that, we've got to have experiences that are positive um, and have meaning for us, um, really become a daily practice, uh, that we practice the sensations and the feelings of these new experiences and make them a daily practice. Um, and then all of a, then we can override the stress response. So let's talk about these feelings and sensations associated with what I'm calling positive experiences. A positive experiences, experience might be like Jennifer in the story of her grandparents, that every time she goes to cut, she feels these spirit, spiritual energy of her deceased grandfather and grandmother with her. And she's feeling this comfort and support. 
And when she feels it, I might say to Jennifer, so tell me what's happening in your body when you feel them behind you. Oh, there's this feeling of light and the sensation of comfort. And I can feel this love beaming at me. So those are the feelings and sensations I'm talking about we need to practice. So we might have a mindfulness practice. And the question is, in your mindfulness practice, what are the energetic sensations that you feel when you're connected in? And someone could say, oh, my heart's beating. I can feel the, my pulse. I can feel flow of energy in the core of my body, like electricity going through my body. When we stay with the energetic sensory sensations from our mindfulness practice, from our comfort and support practice, from our gratitude practice, from our generosity practice, from our loving kindness practice, from our compassion practice, right? Mm -hmm. We stay with the positive feelings and let those be meaningful rather than the horrible chemical feelings in our brain of, I'm not safe, I'm not safe. Instead, we're overriding it with a feeling of safety through our practice. Let's say our mindfulness practice, because we have 30 years of experience not feeling safe. But mm. now we have this mindfulness practice where we start to feel safe in the core of our body. And all of a sudden, we know that when we feel safe in our body, there's this energetic quality of flow, calm, spreading open, warmth, pulsing. And we do that in my practice as I have people practice one staying with the the energy for at least a minute, six times a day. So six times a day, they visit into warmth, flow, calm. So it's anchoring and, in a new positive experience. Exactly. And creating new cycles and patterns, I suppose. And when we do that, not only do new neural pathways change, Sarah, but also new, new feel-good neurochemicals uh, neurotransmitters begin to release like dopamine mm. and serotonin and GABA and feel-good hormones start to st get stimulated like estrogen, oxytocin. Mm. And even the way our genes function can start to function in a new way. Yeah. So yeah, just like that. We, just like you said, we've got to have these positive experiences that can change the patterns. Mm. that can change the stress response. We've got to visit in and do something a couple times a day. So, you know, a, a minute a day, six times is ideal. Like you said, just to, to kind of combat all the years or the minutes that add up to days, weeks, months, years of these other negative patterns, you have to check in on a daily basis to anchor something new uh, to combat exactly. it. But also, I think there's a huge power in just awareness. This has been my experience of connecting dots just through awareness can be very, very healing. And um, you alluded to it earlier with your trail of questions. And I thought this was so powerful in the book. And I wanted to know if you could just speak to it or just go through some of those questions. The opening one being, what is your worst fear? So you're right. When we can have awareness of this fear that's plagued us our whole life. Um, mm. I'll do something terrible. I'll be hated. Uh, it'll be all my fault. I won't deserve to live. And all of a sudden, through awareness, we make the connection that, oh my God, that's my grandfather's experience. He led a team of his army men through uh, a minefield and everybody died but him. And he came back with this feeling that he made a terrible mistake. And he didn't deserve to live. And that was his feeling. And, oh, you, oh, my God, that's not me. That's him. And just that awareness alone can be highly empowering. Mm. And what I talk about in, I think, the last chapter in my book, I talk about the Holy Trinity, which is sensation, breath, and awareness. So combining all three, the other Holy Trinity, sensation, breath, and awareness, combining um, all three at the same time creates a magnificent palette with which to paint our 
new experience in our life of rather us having the old story that belonged to someone else. We've got a new story with awareness. We've brought breath into our body and we bring stay in tune with the sensations in our body. And we've got the whole kitchen sink there. We've got the holy trinity sensation breath because I want to add to just awareness. Awareness can be enough, mm. absolutely, in some of the cases. But sometimes we also need to calm the sensations and bring our breath there. Yes. I actually I'll just give an example for myself because in reading your your book and listening to you go through those questions as well in a talk, um, I went through the trail for myself and thinking, okay, what's my worst fear? Or you asked another question to say, if things went just terribly wrong and everything fell apart, what would that look like for you? And I thought, okay, so the thing that came to mind for me, an obsessive thought is about success and achieving and fulfilling a life's purpose. And so, okay, if that didn't happen and you went through this deconstruction, okay, if, if that didn't happen, what, what, would, what would be underneath it? And I went down, 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 and it was, I would feel deep shame that mm. came. And then you sort of spoke to it that when it, when it really has resonated, I felt the sensation in my body of going, that's it. That mm. was sort of a deep sinking and almost a shiver. And then going, okay, whose shame could that be? Or who else maybe felt mm. shame? And what came to me, and you know, it just came out of nowhere. So I always trust that organic uh, mm. insight is um, that maybe in my biological mother in being mm. pregnant from the, the small amount I know. Brilliant. Yeah, of the Brilliant connection. And to, yeah. be, to be pregnant without a husband, I don't know her story, or to be pregnant as a child, or to have to give her child away, What any of these mm. things, exactly. Yeah, yeah, great connection. And I breathed into it. That was where I was coming to. When you said the Trinity, I thought, one, I breathed into that resonating of shame. And I also breathed into when I felt that that was a really deeply true connection. And how I knew it for me was because it made me teary in it. So I thought, that's the one I've hit. You got it. Exactly. <laughs> right. I like that you say that. When you say the, when you get the right, when you distill it down to the exact right language, you have a visceral response. Yes. You either have tears or shaking or trembling or or your body just has this this electric feeling. So mm -hmm. that's the type of you know uh, detective trail I like to lead people on to get to the bottom of this language, so they can then trace it like you did. Yes, it's really powerful. And I also wanted to touch on family constellations, considering you run the Family Constellation Institute, and that's been so hugely helpful for me. It's just to speak about how that can help to heal and break some of these cycles. Sure. So a family constellation for those of us who are listening, it's a group experience. It's a group experience done with a lot of people in which participants stand uh, in a circle or, well, stand in a position as our family members to help us shift an old image that we might be carrying. So, for example, we're carrying this old image of I'm a bad person or I'm feeling shame or, you know, I'll do something terrible. And in the constellation, um, when I'm working with people, I'll use some tools like dialogue or imagery or movement or healing sentences, which I list in my book, um, or some body-centered releases to help people break these patterns of suffering and to help them shift what we talked about earlier, which this is this inherited stress response. So yeah, family constellations are an extremely powerful tool. And literally we step into a new image of feeling whole. Because we didn't start off feeling whole before the constellation. And afterwards we stand in a much uh, stronger or clearer place. So it's sort of like, a, now you're saying this, it's like a five sense experience really of a shifting of perspective. And it's like a what? Say it again. Like a, a five sense, all five ah, sense experience right. of shifting right. a perspective right. of the exactly. story. Exactly. And um, I just had a personal question because I've done a few constellations. And as I said, I'm adopted, so I don't have much of the history. So this may be true for some people, just they don't know their history or their secrets in the family. But if you are uh, adopted, the trauma that I inherit, is it? 
bio is it purely biological is it adopted or is it both so it can be everything so okay. first of all because you're adopted you've got the early um break in the attachment of being in your mother's womb with the sentence i can't keep you i can't keep you i can't keep you or the shame or the worry or the pain or the grief she's feeling which translates into cortisol uh, and that's battering the the baby in utero so we've got that trauma right off the bat mm. so there's uh, in uterine trauma in utero trauma and then we've got the trauma of separation where she has to leave you at the nursing home or or gives you away or um here everything that she is to you which is everything is now gone so there's this trauma and then of course we've got now biological inherited trauma in there as well of what sets it up where she can't keep her baby and um has, does she have a disconnect with her mother and so on and so forth so we've got um lots of stuff to pick from but if you're asking me personally where do we start we start with the earliest in this life meaning we start with your early trauma in utero and being given away that's mm -hmm. where i would start the work with you and then later once there's a good handle on that the core in your body is feeling pretty solid and you're able to tolerate the sensations without shutting down or splitting off or dissociating or getting activated where you have this great relation this great relationship internally with your inner body as Eckhart Tolle would call it mm. so you have this internal relationship that feels you know i've got a solid relationship with my core that's flexible solid stable i can count on myself i can breathe into myself and not have the old freakouts or the old falling aparts then we can look at inherited trauma okay so some level of resources internally already yeah. established yeah, yeah. Okay. which i feel in here in you you've got great resources so you know maybe you can begin to look at the then inherited traumas but maybe for the listener first we want to establish these in, if we're adopted we want to or we have had a deep break with our mum or an early trauma uh maybe she lost the baby before us so she was afraid we would die too or mum and dad are fighting or separating when we're in utero or there's an event where she almost ejects the baby because you know she gets um you know uh, a fearful event wondering is the baby died did i is the baby okay is the baby okay you know there can be all these traumas or her mother died during the pregnancy or her father died during the pregnancy or her brother died during pregnancy or there's been a uh incubator experience or a difficult labor or difficult delivery there's a hundred things that could go wrong they're listed on my website mm. so when people go to my website they can read about these early traumas um that can uh cuz my questions are all there um and they can uh, uh you know see the types of the things i'm talking about but once like you said they've developed a great resourceful relationship with their inner body then we can start looking at inherited traumas and that's true with everybody not just adopted people so when i'm working with people i'm looking first at what's early with uh in terms of attachment because in terms of the hierarchy attachment trauma for me as the clinician is um more essential to work with first right than generational trauma okay so you're sort of working your way back that makes a lot of yes. sense and i think that that's it for people who are listening some of the big takeaways and probably the biggest lesson from being introduced to this work is the concept that what we could be carrying may not even be our own some of the stuff that we're carrying might not be our own but if you feel uh that you resonate with this message or you feel slightly pulled to look into this a little bit more or some of these core languages resonate um or you notice these repetitive patterns and cycles is start well one I'd get this book <laughs> <laughs> it didn't start with you and start to follow the breadcrumb trail and just 
go into some of this self-inquiry. It's hugely powerful. I'll put your website in the show notes, which is markwoolen.com, uh, which it's, you know, it's an amazing resource. Uh, so um, I think that's where I will leave people to go and look. And I'd just like to ask one closing question, uh, which is something I'd like to ask all my guests. This show is called Journey to Authenticity. So how would you define a journey to authenticity? Uh, for, for me personally, and I talk about this in the book, so I won't go um, deeply into it, but I lost the vision in one of my eyes. And I was told I was going to lose the vision in both of my eyes. And um, I, that was, there was a journey. Certainly you could look at it positively, call it the hero's journey. And you could look at it um, the other direction, the journey into hell. But it was mm. quite a journey that led me to the other side toward my own authenticity of um, uh, finding the me that was beneath. I'll say it this way. The I, uh, just the letter I, beneath the I. So mm. I had to find the me, the I, um, who lived undeterred or un. Um, that wasn't affected by what was happening on the outside. In other words, I had to work with my core. I had to do my inner work. And in doing my inner work, and I'll leave the story of how that happened to the reader when they read the book, um, my vision came back. And it was, um, was told it would not come back. So it was kind of an interesting experience of uh, moving toward my own inner core, which is where our authenticity lives. It's not in an image we have of ourselves or an idea we have. It's not outside of ourselves. Our authenticity is in the journey through the pain and uncomfortable experiences and uncomfortable sensations inside ourselves. That's, for me, the journey of authenticity. That's beautiful. I, I, um, I'm really glad you touched upon it, but I read that story in your book and straight away it was just like, wow, what an amazing, I never know if it's analogy or metaphor, I get confused, but um, a blind spot for just something that wasn't yet seen. I just, Beautiful. Wow, it was, it was just amazing story. So yeah, thank you for sharing that. Um, and I'd just like to finish by acknowledging you um, just for the work that you do and offering us these tools and this incredible resource in this book for us to be able to connect the dots of our present day experience, but to our history and our lineage and um, for giving, giving our ancestors a voice, I think is very powerful to help us break these patterns so that it's not only for ourselves but for our future generations. So thank uh, you. Thank you for having me and um, thank you for that acknowledgement that's very kind but thank you for giving me the opportunity to speak with you and be on your show and and have this nice conversation i hope that this episode has helped you gain new insights in your quest to discover more of who you are if you want to stay connected then head to journeytoauthenticity.co.uk and subscribe i'd love to hear some of your takeaways thanks again for listening and i'll see you on the next episode